Welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket, everybody. Saul Marquez is here, and today I have the privilege of hosting the excellent Adam Sabloff. He is the founder and CEO of Virtual Health, provider of Helios and the leading SaaS care engagement platform, serving more than 9 million members across the U.S. Prior to Virtual Health, Sabloff served as the VP of Development and Chief Marketing Officer for Midtown Equities, a $7 billion real estate, media, and aviation conglomerate, where he also oversaw its technology subsidiary, Midtown Technologies. While at Midtown, Adam spearheaded the development of the first ever Ritz-Carlton residences in Baltimore, a concept he co-created with the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. Through his work, Adam recognized the seniors and the chronically ill residing in Midtown's numerous developments could benefit greatly from the next generation care delivery and technology that would make the home an organic extension of the healthcare continuum. After losing a loved one to a late stage diagnosis, Adam launched Virtual Health to pursue his vision. Adam is a graduate of Emory University and, as you've heard, has a really great background that I think will make for a great discussion today. Adam, I'm so glad you uh, joined us. No, thanks. I'm, I'm excited to be here. I have nothing left to talk about. You just covered pretty much everything. <laughs> and with that, uh, <laughs> Outcomes Rocket listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs> no. Adam, the uh, bio that we have for you is succinct, but there's so much left to cover. And, and so, Of course, uh, of course. <laughs> I'm glad you joined us today. I'm intrigued by the crossroads of something like the residences that you worked on and the level of service and attention provided there to the home health environment that's kind of arising. So I'm, I'm excited to touch on that in the interview. But before we go there, tell us a little bit about your inspiration for getting started in this space. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I really didn't see myself getting into the healthcare industry. I mean, as, as you mentioned, I worked in the real estate industry and, you know, I, I was we used a lot of, of interesting technology for you know property management systems and lighting systems and smart homes and some of the stuff that was popular in those days and you know being a Ritz Carlton product it was pretty state of the art right so we were we were doing some pretty cool stuff but one of the things we came across is a lot of the individuals who are about to spend millions of dollars buying a condo were concerned about their ability to stay there basically have assistive yeah. services as they age so we decided to look see if we can create like a next generation aging in place ecosystem it's funny because a lot of the things we were doing in those days are, are top of mind now but one of the key components of it was telehealth platform that we had built out we had uh, transportation services nutritional meals maintenance services we had johns hopkins who was going to do care coordination and we were using remote patient monitoring through peripherals that were you know internet enabled which you know this is all stuff that we we've seen but back then it was pretty clunky mm -hmm. and pretty early on and we thought if you could put it all together you can kind of replicate that senior living experience and i just you know look at you know at those days technology just wasn't there in terms of i mean first of all in healthcare it's all about incentives right so right. there's nobody paying for it in those days there's only so much people are willing to pay out of pocket but i think one of the biggest issues is that the healthcare system itself is very reactive so actually changing people's behavior is kind of you know one of the more difficult things that we face as an organization yeah it's not easy very fascinating. So I appreciate you highlighting the evolution and sort of you go from somebody that wants to buy a condo for a million bucks and says, well, I want to make sure I could live in this thing long enough. And now there's the bigger picture where home health is becoming front and center and for very good reasons. So talk to us a little bit about virtual health. How are you guys adding value to the ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, just to complete the story, how I got you made the jump from aging in place to healthcare. As you mentioned in the introduction, I mean, I did have a, uh, a family member who passed away for a late stage diagnosis, and uh, that was my first exposure to the healthcare industry. I found it an extremely frustrating experience, as many people do. 
And the one thing when the, you know, the individual ultimately ended up passing away, and I think the one thing that I, I really had difficulty with was this person was high risk. They were a 40-year smoker, ended up having lung cancer. You would think that if you're being proactive in healthcare, you would suggest maybe a uh, just a basic x-ray, lung x-ray, right? And if you were able to discover this yeah. early, you know, that person would still be here, which is obviously the most important thing. But I also would have spent, we also would have saved the uh, health systems and you know, the amount of time we spent in waiting rooms and dealing with chemo and the amount of money and resources that were taxed from, from a, a system that's overtaxed. And then having the insurance companies spending millions of dollars for end-of-life care when, if they, again, if they had been proactive, they wouldn't have had to spend that money, right? So for me, it was just a very simple concept of if all of our incentives are aligned and we're all aligned to find conditions early, especially in high-risk populations, then why aren't we being proactive and why aren't we all working together? So that was my, my impetus to start virtual health and my inspiration, which was you know, basically the technology that we were using for aging in place. You know, it also could be utilized for any type of high-risk population, obviously the elderly being a, a part of that, but also people who are underprivileged and underserved and using data to essentially detect those high-risk individuals and intervene at the proper moment to save the healthcare system money and time. Yeah, you know, and there's a lot of ways we could make a difference. Just connecting the dots and execution is a challenge. So talk to us about what you believe makes what you guys do different than what's available today. Well, we were purpose-built for value-based care, right? And that was, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you honestly, it, it probably had to do with my my being naive at the time, being yeah. a healthcare outsider. I think a lot of people look at the healthcare industry and they're like, yeah, it's broken. You know, why don't you just you know, modernize it? Why don't you, you know, upgrade this system and upgrade that system? But the reality is, is that incentives aren't always aligned. So you have fee-for-service, models, which is very reactive, right? I mean, it's it's how the system works. Providers get paid by treatments and visits and procedures. So where is the incentive to be proactive? And value-based care was kind of the, um, was what jump-started the, that movement, but also is what put us in play. Because we were out there basically trying to convince organizations that they should be proactive. And they were basically saying to us, why? You know, it's not how the system works, right? right I mean, it's just right. not, it's just not how the payments are designed. So when the ACA came about and there was Medicaid expansion and transformation with the MCO model and risk sharing, all of a sudden it became about putting healthcare on a budget. And the healthcare organizations recognized that the only way to keep costs down and still provide a high level of care is to be proactive. And from that moment on, we've gained more and more traction simply by the result of value-based care becoming and risk sharing becoming um, front of mind in the healthcare industry. Providers are recognizing they can make a lot more money. Payers are recognizing they could save money. And for once, using community resources and and being proactive and and focusing on home care and caring in the home has become a solution across political divide, across social economic status. I mean, it just provides an opportunity for, for everybody to be healthy you know, healthier at lower cost. Yeah, it really does. And the other thing too, that really has been left out of the equation for a long time is, is the caregiver. You think about care of the home, it revolves around the caregiver. So whether it be a family member or somebody that's hired, the activity that they do is sort of way beyond those point of care checkpoints, which I think has been a missing link for a long time that that home care is going to deliver. So talk to us about that. You know, I mean, how are you guys leveraging the caregiver, and then other things too, right? Not don't just focus there, but you know, maybe some key things that you feel are critical in, in improving outcomes. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons for our success is I came out of that home-based environment. I was about the member themselves mm-hmm. and I was about the caregiver. It wasn't until later that I started to 
reach into more of the care management functions and features and involve the provider. But our focus is really on empowering the member and the caregiver themselves, right? So that's where it all started for us. And the one thing I made, the comment I made earlier about people not not really changing behavior, that is an issue, right? So what we have to do is it really is all about data and analytics, right? It's about capturing as much information outside of the doctor's office. I mean, you know, you look at the EHR as the yes. system of record within, you know, the health systems. We're the system of record outside of the health systems, right? Yes. So we gathered that clinical data, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. There is so much more information that you can get from the caregiver, from the, um, the home care agencies, from care managers, but then even just through tools, like even something as simple as the Apple Watch or passive monitors totally. or EVV, you know, or ADT feeds and all mm-hmm. that stuff. You know, you bring it all together. I mean, I, you know, one example is something that's just as simple as someone just had knee surgery, elderly person, they live on the third floor walk up. How do you capture that? Right. Mm-hmm. They're, gonna have, they're at risk because they're going to have difficulty getting up and down those stairs. So we were able to get that information and we add that all into the, the risk profile. And then we provide the workflows and the automation and the interventions that need to be taken at the correct time by the correct individual. So that's how we do it. And it really is about getting payers, providers, the member themselves, caregivers, community resources, all working together in the the same ecosystem. If we have to do that through integrating with other great tools out there, we do that. In other places, you know, it's just what we provide to our our customers. They can do it uh, using our platform. Yeah. The great examples there, Adam. And, you know, in your view, the last few years, I mean, it sounds like things are improving as far as uh, value-based care, you know, because at the beginning, it was a buzzword, even when the Affordable Care Act came out, right? I mean, and then we slowly started seeing ACOs and other efforts to get better, but I feel like we've gotten better, but I want to hear from you. Like, what's your perspective on that? It's it's funny because there's probably very few people that know how little traction value-based care was getting more than, more than I have, simply because everybody was talking about it and it was a hot topic and everyone was writing stories about it. And you go to some of these conferences and everybody's talking about it, but nobody was actually doing anything about it. Yes. And some of the earlier models, they failed. I mean, things like the co-ops, right? In the early days, those things didn't work, uh, work out very well. And it really took kind of, it really is, it just speaks to the innovation of, you know, some of these startups that are popping up. I mean, we came in, we ended up on the payer side, right? Because they're the ones with the care management organizations, they're the MCOs, they're managing risk. And it was very natural for them. But the organizations that are, are best suited to be doing effective, proactive care management are providers because they're the ones who have the relationships with the individuals. They're not looking at numbers, they're looking at at humans. But then what the providers did is they immediately saw this ACO model and they all jumped into that, but not recognizing that in order to take risk and actually provide outcomes, as as I mentioned earlier, so much of it is outside of their, their purview, right? And it's all in the community. And they don't have the technology to succeed in a situation like that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them either didn't have the technology or they didn't have staff. I mean, it takes a lot of staff to run a model like this. And so, you know, they weren't exactly effective. But I think what we're seeing now, and this this is kind of the, the perfect storm that we've been waiting for, is, is the unification of payer and provider, the pay provider, right? Mm-hmm. These organizations that kind of sit between, that take on risk do care management on behalf of multiple provider groups or a health system, and then share the, share the upside and share the gains with the providers. So you have, it really is the payers and providers working together, you um, know, and in some cases, the payers taking a bigger lift and sometimes the providers taking a bigger lift. And sometimes you have organizations like Community Care of North Carolina that sits in the middle and facilitates for both sides. We're seeing more and more of that. And that's really the model that we envisioned when we started the organization. So I'm excited because we've never been busier than we are today. And this year looks like the year that, 
you know, value-based care truly takes hold. Man, that's exciting. I appreciate you sharing that because I remember too, Adam, I was at a couple conferences, everybody's talking. Well, there was a guy in the, on the stage that said, all right, raise the hands. And it was a room full of providers. Who here is implementing value-based care? Yeah. And literally there was like three hands out of a room of 2000. And I was just like, oh my God. So it's great to hear from you that things are picking up, you know, and early on, definitely you saw like the vertically integrated payers, like the Kaisers and the UPMCs do it because obviously it makes sense for them. Right. But now you're saying there's more partnerships. And UPMC happens to be a client of ours. So they do a fantastic job. Very cool. Very cool. So they get it, you know, and so beyond the vertically integrated payviders, there's now more. And it's exciting to hear that from you. It's, it's where the future is. So let's talk about a little bit about the business. Obviously, you guys have gone through some ups and downs, some ups right now. What's one of the biggest setbacks you've experienced and a key learning that came out to make you guys even better? Healthcare is complicated. <laughs> That's the key lesson uh, yeah. I learned early, early on. It's become almost like a joke internally where you know, I say it's a lot easier to sell condos on the water in Baltimore <laughs> you know, than to sell healthcare technology, but it's actually meaningful what we do. So it takes a tremendous amount of effort. You really, I mean, especially if you're, if you're bringing about change, right, in this industry, because it's, it's, it's an industry that is so risk adverse and the dollars are so big and people's lives are at risk and their health. So the concept of just jumping into the space and saying, you're all doing it wrong, you should be doing it this way. You're also talking to people who are highly educated. You're talking to people who have been doing this their entire careers. I do think that I brought a fresh perspective and I think that helped move the industry forward simply because I was an outsider. But yeah, I mean, the first few years were very, very difficult. You know, one story I'll never forget is I went to uh, a very, very small, you know, I mean, we're dealing with million, you know, millions of members now. I was talking to an organization that had 50 people mm -hmm. and they said to us, look, we like the concept, we like what you're doing, but I know I'm not going to get fired for using a product from 1990, right? Uh, backed by GE. Yeah. So that's the kind of headwinds that you have to face. And then, you know, you get 50 and then you have to, you go to someone who has 1500 members and they say, well, you've never done 1500 members before. How do we know you can handle that? And it was a yeah. long, long road and a very hard road, but a very fulfilling road. That's really what it's about is you're improving people's lives. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing more powerful than that. Totally agree. And there's so many obstacles. Healthcare is complicated, but it's keeping your eye on the North Star. You have to, you know, keep your eye on the North Star of your business value prop, just like Adam has to be able to stay in the game because it's not as fast as you may think. If you're new to the industry, and if you're not, then even still, right, there's the different verticals of the industry where you struggle. So Adam's a great example of staying in the game until you find success. You know, how about mental health, right? I mean, we're definitely facing a mental health wave of the pandemic. You guys play in that field? It's one of our largest growth areas right now. Talk to they're us about it. What are you guys doing there? Again, they're, they're doing care management specifically for mental health, for behavioral issues, for the IDD space. They're recognizing that how powerful, you know, the mind is in, in terms of physical health. And it's one of those things where they were separated for so long. They were just, they were treated so differently, but now they're almost, it's basically another line of business, like for some of our clients, right? I mean, it's just, they recognize that they need to have specialists on that front. They realize that there are organizations that are better suited for dealing with those types of populations, but that they should still be the ones who are quarterbacking. So what they do is they delegate the populations. Mm. And then we serve as the bridge between the two. But all of that information, regardless of whether or not you're a standalone behavioral health organization or it's just a part of your strategy, it is an integral part these days of how organizations are identifying risk and how they're making decisions about their patients' care. No, that's awesome. Sounds like you guys are honing into that. And, you know, really looking at the overall health, it's about having those touch points outside of those acute episodes. And you guys are doing just that. 
So what are you most excited about today? I'm most excited about the gains of digital health. And you know, for all the, the negativity around COVID and all the things that the havoc it's wreaked, what it's also done, it's shown a light on the potential of some of these digital health initiatives, telehealth being one of them. Like I said, we had a telehealth platform in 2012. Nobody used it. We pulled it out. And then all of a sudden, when COVID hit, all of our clients said, you know, it'd be interesting if we could have a telehealth-enabled care management platform. We were like, okay, you know, that sounds like a great idea. And a week later, it was up and running. And they were like, how did you do that? You know, it was just like, yeah. uh, we were trying to tell you guys this early on, but also all the connected devices and the wearables. And like I said, uh, once again, I can't say it enough, behavior change is the hardest part of healthcare. And if you can just capture the data passively, I mean, you can get that through, you know, a lot of these different apps that are popping up, a lot of different wearables, even things like you're talking about behavioral health, you know, you have isolation, Alexa, Amazon Alexa can be very helpful with some of the apps that are developed there. But from our perspective, all of those are just tools, right? They're just data points. And what we do is we take all of that and we make it all part actionable, right? We bring it into the whole person record and all of those data points just get combined with, like I said, the tip of the iceberg, the clinical stuff. And that's, so I, I think the most important thing is that these gains in digital health can't be short-lived. It can't be something, we're not going back to, you know, this proactive community, technology-driven, technology-enabled healthcare system, I think it is here to stay. Problem is, is that historically, right? All these organizations have had a million systems that didn't talk to each other. And then interoperability was always an issue internally. You know, you see that with like some of the care management technologies, utilization management, EHRs. But now you have all these disjointed digital health solutions that they just got adopted overnight because of what was going on in the industry, in the world with the pandemic. But when you have a platform like ours and we're very early adopters of digital health. We're able to handle the interoperability of the internal systems, but we could also provide that bridge and that intersection for the digital health tools as well. And I think that, you know, that wearable passive data is more valuable than any data we're getting elsewhere, right? You're going to have trend and track uh, the ability to, to uh, get real-time heart rates and blood pressure and all that kinds of stuff. So to me, that's the most, that's the most exciting part. I've been waiting for this, for this moment. Especially, I think everyone who's been dabbling in digital health over the years has been waiting for this moment because it, it will change the world. Yeah, well said, Adam. And it is exciting. And you guys have taken a lot of care to really provide this intelligent care management platform so for anybody listening that's interested in engaging or just figuring out how you could help them, what's the best way they could get in touch with you, Adam? And where can they learn more? Oh, I would definitely say go to our website, which is virtualhealth.com. And that's that's the funny thing too, is a lot of people are out there and they use, you know, they use the terms virtual health to explain kind of what's going on out there. So we are a company, you know, virtual health. So yeah. uh, virtualhealth.com is where most of the information lives. You know, we also have a pretty good LinkedIn profile and obviously you can find me there. We're not a stranger to the industry. So we're at conferences and hopefully we'll be we'll be getting back on the planes pretty soon and uh, life will get back to normal. Yeah, for sure. Well, listen, Adam, thanks for sharing the framework that you guys have that really, I mean, does improve outcomes and can help a lot of people. Thank you. This has been fantastic and looking forward to staying in touch. No, my pleasure. I really, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. <laughs>